Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. You're listening to Leanne Moll. We're on Heavy Petting every Wednesday, 10 a.m. until 11 a.m. Um, and we talk about everything about dogs, cats, lizards, rhinos, cows, platypuses, animals you eat, animals you test on or that you shouldn't, absolutely everything. Um, and we're going to kick right into our doggy style um, part of the segment because in studio we have with us Brad, I don't even know your surname, Brad. Oh, my surname's Mills. Thanks very much for having me. Brad Mills, who stalked me on Facebook <laughs> and said that he'd heard heavy petting and um, that he had a troop of huskies. What would you call them? A, a, a pack. pack. A pack yeah, of huskies. Pack. And they're in here with us now, and there's three of them, and they're absolutely beautiful and so adorable. So this is Brad and his huskies, and they'll be joining us for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the show. They're sniffing around nervously um, in the studio, and we are on AstroTurf, so I'm hoping that they don't mistake it for grass. Um, if they do, I'll have to pick it up. Yeah, you'll have, to, you'll have to be the human poop scoop. I'm sure you do a lot of that at home. Oh, it's, it's, it's endless. Okay, so, endless. I mean, that's not the only thing. No. Is, is your house crazy with these animals? Because they've calmed down now, but they're pretty excitable. Yeah, when they're at home, they're quite calm. Um, they kind of know their boundaries and, and the rules in place. Um, but uh, the hair, I can say, rolls all over the place. Yeah. So it's constantly sweeping. It's like tumbleweed, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's tumbleweed. I let them sleep inside. Um, there's no way I'm letting them sleep outside. Yeah. It's just uh, So they've got their own beds. But uh, the rules are not allowed on the couch, not allowed on the beds, and they're quite happy. Okay, so it's quite an organized household. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's meet them. We've got... The big guy, he's the male of the three, um, and his name is Raiden, and he's a husky Malamute cross. I can tell you he's really big. He's absolutely beautiful. Both his eyes are blue. They're both blue. Uh, with Malamutes, uh, genetically, they have brown eyes, but uh, from the from the husky side, he's he got well, he got the blue eyes. Yeah. He roughly weighs around about 45 kilograms. Okay. I think his tail weighs about 10 kilograms. <laughs> All my sister's friends and everyone just want to steal his tail for winter. Yeah, and wear it around their necks. Wear it around their necks. <laughs> his tail is the size of my dog. In fact, it's bigger. And uh, my dog's Joey, the little miniature pincher. Um, I, do, I will tell you, though, that Joey loves to smell hairy bums. <laughs> and that tail, would, that tail would turn him on in a big way. <laughs> okay, and then we've got Kitana. Yes. Uh, Kitana, well, both Raiden and Kitana are my uh, um, uh, dogs that I got as puppies, about eight weeks old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kitana is a um, uh, is a husky, uh, Alaskan husky. Um, she weighs around about uh, 25 to about 30 kilograms, yeah. about 25. She's the swimmer of the lot, so okay. the first place after a long walk is straight in the swimming pool. And she gets in and out easily, no problem. Oh, yeah, no problem. Because the problem is getting in and then not being able to get out. Yeah, I had to show her a couple of times where the steps were. Yeah. And uh, now she swims around to the deep end, all the way around, out of the steps, and then wants to run inside. I was like, no, no, <laughs> you're not coming inside. <laughs> yeah. Now she's got one, I can see one brown eye, and the other's kind of multicolored. Yeah, she's, uh, she was quite unique when we saw her. Um, she was actually the last puppy. And uh, no one wanted her because of her eyes. And I thought, well, why not? It's quite rare to, to see a husky with those different colored eyes. So yeah. we took her. Oh, She's absolutely beautiful. I must say we've got Damon in here. I've asked him to help be the dog handler, although all he's doing is being given hugs by all the animals. <laughs> Duncan, our producer, is slightly afraid of all these dogs in here. Um, but I think they would, they would lick you to death before anything else. Yeah. Okay, and then we've got Frost. Frost is yeah. a very special case. Yeah, Frost is a very, very special case. Um, I am friends with one of the uh, one of the guys who are, inv- <laughs> who are involved with the Husky Rescue Center, and uh, they had a case, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, somewhere in either Boxburg or Benoni, uh, where they had uh, a, a puppy farm uh, going okay. on there, like a puppy mill, a puppy mill yeah. sort of going on there, and she was one of 11 that were rescued Jeez. when they uh, took her f- to the vet in um it was somewhere in the in the west rand she was 11 kilograms uh emaciated mm. uh, mange um, her hips were all sticking out you could feel every single rib uh when i went to go and fetch her she had put on uh she she was about 19 20 kilograms which is still not good enough uh which is still not good enough yeah um 
But uh, I kept at it. She was very food aggressive. Um, because she'd battled for food. She, she'd battled for food with the others. Uh, yeah. You could see that she'd been used as uh, basically just producing puppies. That was all. Okay. Her teats were all inflamed and, yeah. and, and cracked as well. Um, oh, man. And uh, I had to s- feed her separately from the others to uh, to try and stop that food aggression, just yeah. to show her that there's no one else going after her food. Um, but I've had her for about a year now. She's about 25, 30 kilograms. Um, she looks wonderful. She's had, well, she's had no training, but I've t- taught her sort of the basic uh, sit and stay and what have you. She just p- pricked up her ears when you said sit and stay. <laughs> and I think two of them behind me must have stayed and sat as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're just waltzing around there. And uh, she's, uh, food aggression is gone. I can feed her with, with the other dogs. She used to have an issue with new dogs as well, um, where she yeah. would snap at them. Now she meets a, a new dog. If it gets in her face, she gives a little growl. There's yeah. no aggression. The aggression is gone. So she's uh, she's currently looking for a home. Um, are you going to be able to give her? <laughs> this know. is the big question. Or are you going <laughs> to start collecting? Know. I don't know. Everyone has said, oh, she's going to stay with you. And Have um, you ever fostered and given up the animal successfully? No, I haven't. This is the first time. Oh, okay. Well, then in other words, welcome to the family, Frost. Yes. He'll be staying. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's impossible to yeah. to to not get attached. I'm, I fostered three cats, which I yes. kept. <laughs> oh. Couldn't give them back. Um, so we were speaking about Husky Rescue SA, yes, and that's a charity, one of two that I really um spend a lot of time and effort on, yeah. um, on supporting. Okay. And um, the reason why I support Husky Rescue SA is because I believe that the breed, and this is just my own what I've heard, um is very different to normal dogs, yes, to other are. dogs. Definitely. And that sometimes their mannerisms and pack habits are almost solitary and almost like a feline more than a, than a canine, that yeah. they are quite difficult to train. They, they are very difficult to train, um, but if it, oh, they teach you patience. Yeah. Um, and uh, also because they've got the closest sort of bloodline to the wolf family, they test your authority. Um, yes. So they they constantly trying to find out you know who's the leader in the pack and and uh, I've you know I've got to stay strong with them if I let them go or let them loose they'll run amok um, mm. and that's one thing you know and I see if if you go through to the various pet shops and I hate seeing dogs at pet shops you know you don't know what homes they're going to and no. what have you and with with no background information nothing no home checks oh cute puppy not yeah. knowing how big it's going to get yeah with uh, with huskies, you've got to know the breed, and they, as I said, they, they're difficult to train, number one. Number two, um, they are have a lot of energy. I mean, today, uh, I hadn't taken them on their walk on Sunday. Well, you were pulled up the stairs like you were on a sleigh. <laughs> yes. And then I, I took tried to take control of Raiden, but yeah. um, he, he had me tottering around in my little boots all yeah. over the place. It's just, you know, don't buy, you know, that's one of the things I tell people is don't go and get a husky because they look cute. When they're puppies, they look cute. Mm. And then they leave them. They don't train them. They don't uh, uh, give them guidance, boundaries, rules. And they eventually end up giving them up and and they end up going to either the SPCA, which is probably the worst place to send them, or they end up uh, at the Husky Rescue Center. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of of cases there, sad cases that uh, huskies have ended up Ended up there. Mm. It's, uh, it's, that's the thing is not understanding the breed. Yeah. Um, to, to revert back to a dog that's the opposite on the size scale, that's my miniature pincher again. Um, he was given up, also thoroughbred, given yeah. up, or purebred, given up as a, as a puppy because the, the breed's not understood and they are literally all over the place. They don't stop moving at any yeah. time, only when they sleep. The one thing the Husky Rescue Center do is home checks. Um, yeah to make sure obviously they're going to a good family. The other thing they check for is do you have a double entrance? Because Huskies, uh, if they're not trained, uh, these guys know sort of where the boundaries are. Uh, if they're not trained, they run. So as soon as they see an open door, they're out. Okay. Um, mm. And what they want is uh, a double entrance, sort of double gateway. So one uh, going out to the like road. Like a bank or a post, post office. Yes, yeah, similar type of, a similar type of thing. And if, if you don't have that, they will not uh, – uh, let you have uh, the husky until you've 
renovate or put those uh, measures in place yeah. to try and prevent them from running out. The other thing is you've got to have a high enough wall because most of them, uh, uh, especially my uh, uh, Kitana, the silver one, yeah. she, she clears a stable door. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, one of those stable doors. And uh, they jump over walls. Jeez. Uh, Frost, she, agile. she is petrified of thunder and fireworks. The mm. worst time, and I think any dog owner would uh, would agree with me, the worst time of the year is, number one, Diwali, yeah. where they're letting off fireworks, and uh, New Year's Eve mm-hmm. as well. Um, she she goes absolutely neurotic. Do you, do you medicate her? I do, um, but it doesn't do too much because she's uh, – I give her the tablets um, – put her inside, put the music up loud, and she still doesn't know what to do with herself. She wants to try and squeeze through the security bars. Mm. At one stage, it, um, one of the kids next door let off, uh, must have been a tom thumb or a cap gun or some sort. She squished through the security gate to get oh, inside. Um, with one of the thunderstorms as well that we had, she actually broke uh, my back window to get inside um, and cut herself quite badly, but not uh, severely. Uh, she it's, oh. Yeah, it's and it's something that people are trying to create awareness yeah. of, but it's not going away. Maybe she should get her teeth done on, on those nights. <laughs> Just yes. go, go to a spa, have her teeth yes. done, have a little sleep, sleep it off. Take it to take it to the vet, give her a little bit of uh, morphine. Yeah. <laughs> she be quite happy. Half a anesthetizer. But, but yeah, I mean, pet owners have to go to a lot of trouble for this. Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes it's, you have these random... Um, firecrackers and things going off as yes. well, and you won't be at home, and you can just imagine what's yeah. going on at I home. Get, I get phone calls by uh, ADT saying your alarm has gone off because she opens doors. Okay. So she'll go through the security bar and, and open the doors. You know. So she's a very See, clever. She's not. she's she's a rescue. She's tough. Yeah. She's had to learn learn her way around. But um, other than that, they they they're really awesome dogs. Yeah. Uh, they. Uh, I think if if a person's educated enough about the breed, then. Yes then you'll be good. Oh, definitely. And if they've got a, a heart as good as yours for, yeah. for, for volunteering to um, foster. Um, she uh, had an issue once. Um, she was eating too fast, and I had to mm. get her one of those slow feeders. Yes. Um, and because she was swallowing so quickly, it was uh, – this is Frost. Uh, the rescue. The rescue. Um, because she was swallowing so quickly, uh, she would swallow air at the same time. Now, dogs can't burp sort of spontaneously. It just kind of comes yes. up. So – it got stuck. She would start howling. Oh, like, my gosh. It sounded like I was murdering her, so much so that the neighbors were looking over the wall. I said, it's not me. I didn't do anything. <laughs> She's a rescue. And yeah, like, I rescued okay. her. <laughs> she doesn't need rescuing. Brad, thank you so much no for worries. coming in. And thank you very much. They're all, now that they're all calm and quiet, I, I want to keep them here forever. <laughs> they're too lovely and well done for, for offering oh. to, to Foster. And thank you so much for coming in today. No worries. I know you had to take off a day of work. Yeah, no, anytime. Anything for a day off work, I suppose. Hey? Day off work and day with the puppies as well. So. Yeah, well, they're hardly puppies, and I believe <laughs> you have to squish them back into a car now. Yes, yeah. Um, Don't have a bucky, so I'm yeah. going to have them all over me today on the Absolutely way home. Absolutely beautiful. Um, here's what Pet360 says about the Siberian Husky. They say the Siberian Husky is smart, mischievous, and powerful. They say this dog is active and can run for miles yes. at, at a stretch. Um, and here's what they've got to say about it. The Siberian Husky is a medium-sized dog with a strong build. Its head is triangular with a long muzzle and erect ears. It's most commonly seen in white and black, white and brown, or white and red. One of the fun things about the Siberian Husky is their eyes. They can come in any color or any combination of color. They can have blue eyes, brown eyes, one of each. The Siberian Husky obviously is a choice for sledding. They have the double coat, which allows them to withstand many types of weather. They're able to go for long periods of time without food, which is ideal when they are providing the jobs and being loyal to their owners. It's a high energy breed. It requires a lot of exercise. Not always good with small animals, great with children. The Siberian Husky can sometimes be difficult to train and may need professional help. And though the breed's lineage remains a mystery, the husky is probably of spit stock. 
They were dogs of a nomadic Indian tribe called the Chachki Indians, and they were used in the winter to carry game, and in the summer they were turned loose to fend for themselves, which is part of the reason the Siberian Husky has such a high prey drive. Shortly after 1900s, Americans heard of this amazing sledding dog and brought them over to Alaska for their purposes. Their stamina and ability to withgo all types of weather situations allowed them to help their sledders pull them in upwards of 400 miles on each given trip. The Siberian Huskies' popularity soon spread into Canada, and in 1930, the American Kennel Club officially recognized the breed. Several Siberian Huskies would later serve on the U.S. Army's Arctic Search and Rescue Unit during World War II. They are trainable if you don't try to dominate them. Uh, Fun-loving, they're pack animals, they're perfectly willing to have the family be their pack. As a pet, Huskies will require that you brush their coat often to avoid mats and excessive hairballs in your house. To learn more about the Siberian Husky and to meet other Husky lovers, check out our Siberian Husky group in the Pet360 community. Some dog lady who I absolutely adore, and she doesn't mind being called a meandering madam and her mutt. She's a true hero. Her name is Joanne Lefson, and uh, she wrote the book about Oscar, who she traveled around the world with, her little rescue dog, um, and they, they did absolutely everything that you can imagine and were very successful in completing their journey. But I'm not going to spoil the story for you. Um, Lindsay Williams chatted to Joanne Lefson, um, and that was in Cape Town. So let them go ahead and tell you what's going on, the story of Joanne Lefson and Oscar. Yes, I did take a, a dog up uh, up the Himalayas to the top of the world, but it all started back in 2004 when I adopted a dog called Oscar from the Cape of Good Hope SPCA. And um, in a nutshell, he was my best buddy. We did everything together, including going around the world, going to 42 countries on five continents. Was that, was that something to do with charity or was that just something that you wanted to do as an adventurer? It was really to highlight the plight of homeless dogs and to really show what amazing dogs are available at shelters, not just in South Africa, but around the world. Everywhere Oscar went, everybody wanted to know where they could get an Oscar. And every time I told them, well, from a shelter, they just could not believe that such a great, great dog was available from a shelter. So, What sort of dog was he? He was a complete mutt, actually. Very cute. I had him DNA tested in Florida, and he was he's actually was a mixture between an Alsatian, a Corgi, a Cocker Spaniel, and a Basset Hound. Oh, okay. So his mother was a bit of a Roma. <laughs> <laughs> we'll gloss over that a bit. But anyway, so you took him around the world. Yes. Hmm. Yes. First, first stop, and why? Um, the first stop was actually a Gaborone in Botswana. Um, we linked in with societies all the way around the world to create unique events that created publicity that would, again, highlight the plight of these great dogs sitting at shelters. Mm. Um, it took nine months, traveled about 250,000 kilometers. It was an incredible journey. Obviously, we had we had some good times and some challenging times, but we made it back in, in one piece, and really it was just a very inspirational journey and just amazing being able to do it with my best, best friend. Who funded it? I sold my house to fund it. You sold <laughs> your house to fund <laughs> travels with a dog. <laughs> travels with my best buddy, yeah. Mm. I, I've always said, you know, I think money you can always make back eventually, but an experience you can't buy. And I would do it again in a heartbeat having, if I had the opportunity to do it again. Um, there's, there's, It's priceless. I, um, It was something that I can look back and it'll be one of the best parts of my life for sure. Mm. Well, let's go back to the shelters before we get back to the journey itself. What, what, what particularly struck you and what particularly motivated you to rescue a dog from a shelter and then highlight the plight of other dogs in shelters? Was it because in shelters they've got a two- or three-week lifespan? Tell us more about it. Well, they have about a 12-day lifespan in most hmm. shelters. In South Africa, it's, it, it's a cutoff at uh, 12 days. And it wasn't so much that I was on this mission to highlight the plight of these dogs. I adopted Oscar, and he just 
drew so much attention. And the reality is that 2,000 dogs in South Africa, just like Oscar, are euthanized. And the solution is so simple. You know, if everybody who wants a dog goes to a shelter and adopts one, and everyone that has one sterilizes a dog, we would mm. not have any problems. And so yes. it was really about creating a really cool, unique story that would positively highlight the plight of these these dogs. And hopefully people would would go to a shelter and, and be inspired to go and adopt their own dog. So adopt a dog rather than go and pay 4,000 rand for a pedigree dog, which um, essentially gives you the same pleasure. No, absolutely. And, you know, I will say that one in every three dogs sitting at a shelter is a pedigree dog anyway so you know mm. no matter what kind of a dog you want a shelter is a great place to go okay so you went to gabrone first of all and then after that what did you do where did you go what were the highlights of the journey well start with the first question well we w- we went all the way through africa then across europe into asia uh to china over to america caribbean and south america so we kind of followed the the globe in that sense um there were so many highlights it's hard to really pinpoint i think for oscar he loved the fact that there were just different sniffs, different vibes, different cultures. He really, I think, enjoyed the that part of it. Um, he enjoyed swimming in the Nile crocodile, uh, the Nile crocodile, <laughs> the Nile River, yes. and swimming with crocodiles in the Zambezi River. Um, and f- f- you know, on my side, I, I, you know, some countries I hadn't been to before it was great. Going to Moscow, for example, was a unique experience. Um, going down the Amazon for a week um, and staying with the locals in very remote forest areas was an unbelievable experience. Um, and of course, you know, also we had a good laugh along the way. I mean, I had to get Oscar into airplanes. We had to hide him in taxis. We had to sneak him into suitcases and hotels because the reality is that, you know, people go on holiday. The world isn't programmed for people to bring their dog with them. So we had to be very creative at times. And that was part of the entertainment along the way, I suppose. <laughs> Some countries have a very different attitude to dogs than, than others. So, I mean, for example, in the United Kingdom, in the United States of America, dogs and uh, pets in general are revered. And in France, you go to a restaurant and you'll see a dog. Yes. Uh, having dinner with the family or whatever in other countries and no, let me put it not, I won't put it unkindly but they are, are seen as food first of all and seen as <laughs> uh, uh, just something that is a second class citizen correct correct and especially in Asia as you mentioned we had a lot of we had to deal with a lot of problems and and China specifically, you know, even even with Oscar, dogs over 25 centimeters in height aren't even allowed into Beijing and Shanghai. So we couldn't even stay in the cities that we were actually having our functions at. Mm. And we had to have a special convoy of people just in case we had a problem because there's no there's zero tolerance in a lot of these places. If a dog's in the wrong place and not supposed to be there, it's it's you know, you don't get a second chance. So we had to be mm. very careful in places. And then, of course, like you mentioned, there were some amazing countries. France is, 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 is a good example. America is fantastic. Um, even parts of Africa was actually quite easy. Um, but, like, you know, we just had to adapt and do what we had to do to make sure that we, you know, mission impossible and, and got back in one piece. That is um, Joanne Lefson, who has written the book called A Hound of the World with her little dog, Oscar. Um, we're going to take a break now. Her story does continue. And... It has a tragic middle to the story, a very happy ending, but a very tragic middle. Um, and so we'll continue with that when we come back here on Heavy Petting.
Heavy patting on Cliff Central with myself, Leanne Moll, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. to 11. And uh, we've been listening to an interview with one of my favorite dog people in the world, Joanne Lefson. Joanne Lefson is half British, half South African. And she took Oscar, the canine globe-trotting sensation, around the world in 80 days. And uh, she has been telling us about her travels with Oscar Unfortunately, the, the the tale takes a bit of a tragic turn, or an extremely tragic turn, um, in the middle of the story. Um, but it does have a very happy ending. Let's hear what else happens. We're with Joanne Lefton, who is somebody that I've wanted to meet for a long time, and someone who I've admired, and someone who I'm just damn upset that she's got the job that she does. And that I have the one that I do. But at least it's my job. I get to meet people like her. Um, she has written a book called A Hound the World. And it's about her little dog, Oscar, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, but she traveled literally around the world with little Oscar, who got to sit right up at the front of the plane, kid you not, um, and got to sit on the Great Wall of China and do a whole lot of amazing things. Um, Joanne Lesson, thank you very much for chatting to me today. Hi, Leanne. Thanks so much for having me. You know, and you've got a great job too. Yeah, no, I, I just said that other part just um, to impress you. <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> Joanne, I have to address this very first question because a lot of us were really, really upset about Oscar. How, have you, how, how are you coping with this? And did it really affect you because you're reminded of him so often? Mm. And, and tell us firstly what happened with him. Okay, well, um, good to get the question out of the, out of the way yeah, first. Yeah, um, get the, that stuff out of the way, definitely. I was in California driving into my driveway like I had 150 times before, and I'm still not too sure how it happened, but um, I drove over Oscar's paw, and four minutes later, he was it was game over. The vet yeah. doesn't know how it happened. I still don't know how it happened. As far as coping with it, um, last year was... You know, I always say there's two seconds that have changed my life, and it was the day that I signed the adoption papers for Oscar. It took my mm. life in a whole different direction. Um, that that I I just have loved the journey with Oscar, and that second, that random second in time, that just changed the course of everything and life and understanding as I know it was the day that Oscar died. So, it's been a very rough year. A lot of tears have been shed. Um, I do. Obviously, there's pictures of Oscar all over the place. I'm not trying to shut him out of my life. In fact, if anything else, I look backwards to go forwards now, and I'm completely inspired by having him in my life. And um, you know, I just try and I just try and do things every day that would make him proud, including obviously building my foundation and doing things that really just honor what he was to me. And and my life is dedicated to doing whatever you know we were doing when he was with me. Yeah, well, he he lives on in many books next to beds, I'm sure, including my own. Hmm. Um, and I think I think one of the advantages to this situation is that it just shows us that it happens to everyone. You can absolutely adore your animal, and something tragic can happen. We often feel so guilty about these things, but they happen. No, I know, and I think one of the you know one of the things I've learned out of it is that there's just no guarantees. You know, I think great people come and go, good times come and go, life goes on. And, you know, just I just have a much greater appreciation for, you know, living the day and living in the moment. And I know it's a cliche, but you just don't know what's going to happen. And it happens so quickly. And, and the very foundation that you know and understand mm-hmm. can be gone in a second. So I just say live out loud. You know, bark out loud and and have a ball because you really it's it, life is short and we we don't we just don't know what's going to happen. So yeah, well that in itself is inspiring and it's, it's sometimes I, I don't know I find as I've as I've lost pets along the way, some of them you take a much longer time to get over, um, and a lot of people think you know buying another another dog or adopting another dog is is a cop out, um, but sometimes it just really helps you move on. 
and it's not to replace the other animal. It's, it's, it's something completely different. And I believe you have a new little dog in your life. Well, yes. And like you said, it's definitely not to replace Oscar. It's certainly because of Oscar. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was actually on a dump site in Northern India and, um, and this little, dog on its last legs just came running towards me, which dogs don't do in India. So it was quite a random situation. And oh, are Indian dogs quite hostile. Well, they no, they're very they're very independent. So you know, they just okay. people are they just have to fend for themselves. I'm sure. Definitely, and especially on a dump site in all the India, you can just imagine what the place looked like. I mean, just a disaster. Every worst scene you've ever seen in India: add garbage and a desert, and you've got you know you've, there's a scene. Mm. And um. I decided to, I, I, I couldn't just leave the dog there and I, I took him in and I gave him to my donkey sanctuary manager. I have a donkey sanctuary in the Himalayas. Returned to South Africa and then I thought that maybe I should go back and actually bring him back to South Africa and do Expedition Mount Everest, which was going to be Oscar's last trip to the top of the world. Um, oh. and that's kind of, that's kind of, kind of what I did. Um, and Rupi, yeah. uh, he's now in Cape Town. He's living, at the, he's living with me and he has an absolute dog's life, of course. You know, discovered a couch yeah. for the first time and all these things. He's <laughs> definitely not, he's definitely not Oscar. I don't think he's going to be the next global traveler, but at the end of the day, he doesn't have to be. You know, he has a oh, well, life. You know- and some some people just don't take to travelling well. Maybe he's just one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's what sort of? I know he's probably a total mix. But what does he look like? Can you describe him to us? Um, he, he actually looks like an Africanus, which is basically a pretty yes. normal-looking dog, light brown in colour, kind of skinny, tall legs, which is very typical for Indian uh, street dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and, and yeah, he just likes to likes to roam, likes to eat, still eat a bit of cardboard and rice, you know, <laughs> which is what I'm telling the dumb side. He's <laughs> but um, yeah, he's just he's just rupee, you know. He's just is yeah. is what he is. Oh man. Okay, so um, what are your what are your plans going forward? Right. So um, Oscar's Ark is a foundation inspired by Oscar, and I've bought the uh, small holding in the beautiful wine country of Franschuk. And we start, Oof. we start building the foundation. Now you've made even more <laughs> That's Go what on. I'm here for. <laughs> no, you, you will have to come to our opening and I will definitely keep you posted on that. But basically, um, most amazingly beautiful property in downtown Franschuk on about eight hectares. And the whole vision is to really do what Oscar did so well. So yes, we will have a six star boutique foster slash adoption home, but most importantly, we will the objective will be to go around the world, create unique stories like rupees from India, and then these great ambassadors will come back to Oscar's Ark, live out their days there, and also, you know, then be part of the outreach program, going to schools, you know, with a cool story. Because, you know, especially yeah. the kids, you know, they look at a dog and they go like, wow, you know, you've skydived over Rio or you've gone down yeah. the Amazon, and they they just get it, you know, they get that an adopted dog is like a superstar. And, yeah. you know, it's all about, it's always been about changing perspectives, making people realize that when you adopt a dog, you aren't just saving a life, you are getting an, an amazing, amazing best friend and also could be the start of the greatest adventure of your own life. Yeah. And so the foundation will do all of these things and we will also, there's other things that we're going to be doing, but that's basically the, the foundation of it. Um, I think I think what you've done and the way you've done it is just extraordinary. It really has captured people's attention, and I know a lot of it has been for a good cause, and most of it has been. Um, and it's, it's just so refreshing compared to speaking to animal charities who are giving us an email address and asking for dog food. Yeah. Um, what you've done is just completely beyond that. Oh, thanks, Leanne. You're so nice to me. <laughs> No, but I do, you know, I do, I do appreciate what you're saying. And I think that, you know, when I think when people see the masses of anything or anyone or any animal, and it's hard to really relate to a specific um, issue. And what Oscar did so well was just, you put a face and a voice to the masses. And I think that's, that's what he did well. And, you know, people relate to stories, not to numbers. That's the thing. And, and half of the stuff that comes out of people's mouths is, crap anyway <laughs> and you know little oscar said more than most people do just by being himself and, yeah, and being part amazing. of your adventure yeah you know he was he was amazing you know the other sort of inspiring part of you know oscar's life and we said we used to say it at schools a lot you know if 
if a dog, Oscar was a day away from being euthanized at a shelter, and I promise you I could have ha- I could have adopted Oscar a million times around the world, of course. And yeah. if a dog like that from one day on death row can end up taking going around the world, and a dog like Rupee within minutes of, of dying can actually go to the top of the world, then you know anything is possible. And and yeah. I just I just hope through Oscar's arc, every dog in South Africa will have a home, every dog will be sterilized, and that every animal around the world will know the touch of a compassionate hand. That's the objective at the foundation. Yeah. Joanne, I wish you all the luck and I would definitely like to come and see you and the new little man in your life. <laughs> um, and I wish you all the best with Oscars Art Foundation and any way that we can help. Please send us all of the details and I'll put them up on my on my Twitter and Facebook um, and we'll, we'll make a noise about it. Thanks, Leanne. Thank you so much and thanks for caring. Hey, I really, It's been great talking Gosh. to you. Goes without saying, I'm just glad that there are people like you. Thank you so much, Joanne. <laughs> Thanks, Leanne. That was me chatting to Joanne Lefson, who's written the book, Around the World, uh, its journey that she took literally around the world with her dog, Oscar. Here are her contact details if you want to learn more about the Oscar, um, Oscar's Ark, which um, she has now set up in aid of animals. Well, we have a website, worldwooftour.com. The foundation is called Oscar's Ark. The website will only be up at the end of next month. The foundation itself officially opens in March 2015, so there's not too much happening at this point. So I suggest people um, get in touch with me through the landing page of the website, and I will put them on the database and keep them informed of all the progress moving forward. Well, there was a huge doggy-style section on heavy petting today. Um, we're going to take a look now at animals that have been in the news this week, and we move on to something completely different penguin poop. Researchers had previously believed that emperor penguins would die off when they were unable to relocate because of a changing Antarctic climate. Now, the study has now tracked these penguin migrations and blown that theory out of the water by looking at their poop from space. Um, This is Christian Bryant from Newsy Science who has the rest of the story for us. A new study shows emperor penguins in Antarctica are more likely to migrate in the face of changing climate than previously thought, thanks to researchers not only tracking the waddling birds, but also following their feces. Of all the things you could spot with satellite imagery, researchers observed trails of dark penguin poop against a cold, white Antarctic canvas. What they found was that emperor penguins are adapting and relocating when the climate gets, well, crappy. So why is that important? Well, according to live science, emperor penguins are a phylopatric species, meaning they return to the same spot each year to breed. But University of Minnesota researchers who conducted the study found that's not quite the case. In a release on the school's website, researchers say they found that in six instances within a three-year span, emperor penguin colonies did not return to the same location to mate. The study's researcher, Michelle LaRue, said the penguins' relocation has to do with receding sea ice. Emperor penguins forage in the water, but come back to the same place on the sea ice to breed. That sea ice expands in the winter and recedes in the summer. LaRue explains much of what we know about emperor penguins comes from the Point Geology Colony, which was featured in the National Geographic documentary March of the Penguins. Researchers had believed that the colony was cut in half because of a change in climate and the penguins had nowhere to go. But satellite imagery showed more colonies and, yes, poop trails within marching distance of point geology, which challenges current theories about emperor penguins. Because of that, I don't think that emperor penguins are always phylopatric. I think that they can be. Um, I think when times get tough, though, I think they have the ability to move. LaRue shied away from making any other conclusions about penguins, but said more attention needs to be focused on colony fluctuations. The study will be published in an upcoming edition of the scientific journal, Ecography. For Newsy, I'm Christian Bryant. Well, this, this animal crashed his way literally into animals in the news this week. It was a black bear in Alaska who has caused a bit of a stink. Um, he crashed right through a skylight into a child's birthday party and ate all the cupcakes. During a birthday party at the home of Alicia Bishop and Glenn Merrill in Juneau, Alaska, a young male black bear fell through the skylight while they were making cupcakes for their one-year-old son. Glenn told the Juneau Empire, I was literally in the room and I heard this cracking, and the next thing you know, there's this bear that, I mean, literally fell right from the skylight. 
It was like one meter away from me. On to conservation conversation now here on Heavy Petting. And uh, we have a story about the Ugandan gorillas. Ugandan gorillas, as many species are, under threat. But tourist dollars are protecting them. And the story brought to us by AFP. These emerald hillsides are a mecca for wildlife enthusiasts who flock to this remote corner of southwestern Uganda for one thing, gorillas. The forest is home to an estimated 400 mountain gorillas, roughly half the world's population, including several families which have become used to human presence. Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo are the only countries in the world where you can see these mammoth primates. That privilege comes at a price, though. Roughly $600 for a single-entry gorilla trekking permit. It makes it a bit easier, and we are willing to pay that kind of money because we know that a large part of those resources are reinvested in the preservation of the species, and we also felt like we'd experienced something very exclusive. Threats to the mountain gorilla, including war, habitat destruction and disease, were once thought to be so severe that the species could become extinct by the end of the 20th century. But the population has increased significantly in the last three decades, largely due to improved conservation efforts. Gorillas are not the only ones benefiting. Tourism dollars have boosted the economy of local communities that surround the park. In addition to income from hotels, souvenir shops and jobs in the park, communities also receive 20% of park entry fees and $5 per gorilla trekking license. Although it can't cover the whole community, but at least, yeah, there is some improvement. Because most of the people used to stay in grass thatched, now they are living in iron sheet. So tourism is doing a great thing. And yet it can be difficult to balance species survival with the needs of a still impoverished region. Human-animal conflict remains. Animals can destroy crops and property, while destruction of the natural habitat and human population growth have pushed people into closer contact with the gorillas, causing transmission of human diseases. Efforts to mitigate these problems include the creation of buffer zones, income-generating activities for local residents, and community health programs. But there is still far to go. The communities are major stakeholders. They live with these gorillas. They have lived with these gorillas for ages before conservation started. Some of them still look at that forest as their forest, where they use it to access resources like firewood, like medicine. And so we thought that it was very, very important that we still work with the communities and show them that this is still your resource. These gorillas are still for your benefit. While tourism is far from the silver bullet against poverty, the search for sustainable conservation practices may be the only way to ensure that these communities and their gorilla neighbors continue to share this remote paradise. Well, as we continue the conservation conversation here on heavy petting, um, have you ever wondered what would happen if bees became extinct? Um, I think I learned a a lesson when um, I was almost... Uh, enveloped by a swarm of bees at uh, my house um, and I didn't know who to call to get these things out of the garden um, and obviously the first place I looked up in the yellow pages was um, like a, a pest remover um, knowing of course that they're not pests but it was a good move because the pest removers all know that they need to send you onto a beekeeper and a beekeeper will remove um, the, the swarm for you and it's a really interesting process to watch I must say um, so, yes, they are rare. They're becoming rare. So what do we do to stop them from becoming extinct? And more importantly, what will happen? Would you believe that it could even affect our wine drinking and and the stocks of wine around the world? This is Maddie from Earth Unplugged, and she reveals just how much we depend on bees and how close we are to facing the reality of losing them altogether. Hi, I'm Maddie. Have you ever considered where would we be without bees? Now, I know people bang on about conserving every last species, but surely we can do without some of the nasty stinging ones. 
Well, not really. As far as important species go, bees are up there at the top of the list. They are critical pollinators. Of the 100 crop species that feed 90% of humanity, over 70 of them are pollinated by bees. Honeybees are the world's leading pollinators, responsible for $30 billion a year in crops. But that would only be the start of our losses. And to be honest, you can't really put a price on it. If we lose bees, then we may lose all of the plants they pollinate, all of the animals that eat those plants, and ultimately up the food chain to us. It's thought a world without bees just couldn't sustain over 7 billion people. Without bees, our supermarkets would have around half the amount of fruit and vegetables. It could mean a world without such luxuries as carrots, apples, lemons, onions, melons, Brazil nuts, and of course, honey. No lime for my gin and tonic, no coconut for my pina colada, and to be honest, I can barely bring myself to say it. Not even enough grapes for my wine. <laughs> Sadly, it gets worse because we are losing bees at a frightening rate. Honeybees, bumblebees and solitary bees are all in decline, but what's to blame? Well, one strong contender is a loss of flower meadows. Bees need the flowers' sugary nectar to drink and the flowers need the bees to reproduce. Here in the UK, it's estimated that we've lost around 97% of our flower-rich grassland in the last 70 years. And ironically, it's often to make way for crops that depend on the bees. It might explain why a number of bumblebees have gone extinct in the UK in the past few decades. And then there's the Varroa mite, a tiny crab-like creature that lives on the back of honeybees, sucking their blood during the winter months and reproducing in their developing brood in the summer. It's thought to be behind colony collapse, where bees either slowly die out or abandon their hive for pastures new, taking the unwelcome mites with them. One thought is to invest in killer bees, super aggressive and large honeybees that don't seem to mind the Varroa mite. However, as their name suggests, they have a nasty little habit of killing cows and people. A further scourge of the bees is good old favourite global warming. A study in Colorado suggested that the wonky weather might be disrupting the usual synchronisation of opening flowers and bees emerging from hibernation. It found that pollination levels may have dropped by as much as 50% whilst the snoozing bees missed the flowers in bloom. This is particularly tragic because it happens even in pristine areas untouched by humans, disease and pesticides. Sadly, global warming is just that, truly global. And if these weren't enough, the final nail in the coffin may be pesticides. One particular class called neonicotinoids, or neonics for short, seems to be a major culprit. In the lab, tiny amounts of neonics cause honeybees to struggle to learn where their food sources are, how to find their way home again, and even promoted viral replication inside them. It seems to be having a huge impact in recent years. Since 2006, US beekeepers have lost around 30% of their hives during the winter each year, much higher than the usual 5-10%. to 10%. In certain provinces of southwest China, heavy pesticide use and loss of habitat has effectively eradicated wild bees. The situation has got so bad that farmers are having to pollinate orchards by hand, going round with a paintbrush and a little pot of pollen. One honey-coated lining is that this isn't the first time it happened and clearly the world didn't stop spinning. In 2013, scientists discovered that around 65 million years ago, there seemed to be a mass extinction of bees comparable to the current crisis of declines that we're seeing. However, they did get wiped out at the same time as the dinosaurs and flowering plants, and those extinctions had a flipping asteroid to blame. Happily, evolution always finds a way, and researchers have recently found that more sex might be the answer. Very promiscuous queen bees have much more genetically diverse offspring than their monogamous peers. Their progeny can support a greater diversity of gut bacteria, which produces healthier, hardier colonies. 
So yes, bees are in trouble and really need our help, but there is a glimmer of hope that this question isn't one we'll have to answer in the near future. For more great films about science and nature, make sure to subscribe and I'll see you soon on Earth Unplugged. The horned lizard is too slow to outrun a snake, so it makes itself appear larger and taller. Surely too much of a mouthful for the snake. But it has another trick. It plays dead. We'll have more on that clip next week on Heavy Petting, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. until 11 a.m. Some very good news um, as we, we start to end off now in our horny friend section of the show. South Africa's moved a little step closer towards scrapping the 30-year-old world ban on rhino horn trading that has largely failed to stem the bloody wave of illegal poaching across Africa. Um, our Environment Minister, Edna Mulewa, has issued a formal invitation to the public to present opinions on whether the country should seek permission to start selling rhino horns legally to China, Vietnam and other eastern nations. And this is all in a bid to slow down the relentless decimation of the rhino population. Now, uh, a cabinet decision in April last year authorized the Environmental Affairs Department to investigate the feasibility of selling rhino horns. And, however, the, the final decision rests with the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, CITES, whose member states will only meet in South Africa in two years from now. But at least we're making steps towards it. And uh, even if we can hang on for two years, it's hoped that we can. And perhaps a decision will be, will be made then. That's all from Heavy Petting today on Cliff Central. Uh, if you'd like to email me with suggestions for the show or any questions that you have about any animals that you'd like me to look into, you can email me leanne, that's L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N, at cliffcentral.com. Up next, rookies and rock stars with Luby. And uh, I asked her what was going on in the show today, and she said one thing, ice cream. <laughs>